Hi, and welcome to Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball and international affairs. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. This is the inaugural podcast, so let me take a minute to tell you about Painting the Corners. My hope for this podcast is to bring people from the world of baseball and the world of international affairs together for a conversation about these two topics and whatever else might come to mind. My guests will include scholars, writers, NGO activists, and practitioners of international affairs. From the baseball side, I will try to bring in writers, analysts, scholars, people from the industry, coaches, and others. When the podcast goes well, the two guests will interact and bring new insight and new questions to each other's field. When it doesn't go so well, we will probably end up with two separate but interesting conversations. I am very pleased to have two great guests on this first Painting the Corners podcast. These are both people whose work I admire and whose work I've read for several years. Lisa Swan has been co-writing Subway Squawkers, the popular New York Mets, New York Yankees fan blog, since 2006 with her Met fan best friend, John Lowen. Lisa writes the Yankees side of the blog. If you like New York City baseball, I urge you to check out their site, subwaysquawkers.com. Lisa's writings have been published in the Washington Post, the Daily News, Yahoo Sports, and Guidepost Magazine. In addition to writing about the Yankees, Lisa is also on a fitness journey. She has lost 80 pounds so far and has run three half marathons and completed two Spartan races. She is currently training to run the New York City Marathon this November. Lisa was quoted this year in the New York Post and Yahoo Finance talking about the Yankees' secondary ticket market battle with StubHub, something neither the Yankees nor StubHub are happy with her about, and if you have a chance to go up to Yankee Stadium and buy tickets through the secondary market, you know what Lisa's talking about. If you want to hear more from Lisa, you can follow her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Subway Squawkers. That's her uh, social media handle. Also, stay tuned for a big announcement as per which media outlet their site will soon be paired with. Alexander Cooley is the Claire Tao Professor of Political Science at Barnard College and Director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute for the Study of Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. He is a well-known scholar to anybody who studies that part of the world or international affairs more generally. His research examines how external actors have shaped the sovereignty and political development of the post-communist states with a focus on post-Soviet Central Asia and the Caucasus. He is the author of dozens of articles and five academic books, including Great Games, Local Rules, The New Great Power Contest in Central Asia, and Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. Dictators Without Borders is due out probably in February, I'm told. Alex and the Harriman Institute are putting together some great events in the coming year or so about the 70th anniversary of the Institute, as well as the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Check out their website, www.harriman.edu, for more information about that. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Cooley on Eurasia. Before we get started, a few logistics. I will post this on iTunes as well as on my website, lincolnmitchell.com. So go to lincolnmitchell.com and then on the left-hand column, click Painting the Corners and you can get to the, the uh, podcast. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to learn more about me and my work, you can visit my site, lincolnmitchell.com or follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. My latest book, The Democracy Promotion Paradox, was published by Brookings Press earlier this year. And my newest blog on domestic politics, What's Next for Donald Trump, is up on the Huffington Post this week. You can buy that book on Amazon, Powell's, or through the Brookings Institute website. If you want to reach me about the podcast or about writing or speaking, the best way is email at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. You can also send any feedback you have about the podcast to me at that email. So welcome, Lisa and Alex. Um, I want to begin talking about the Yankees a little bit. Uh, Lisa, the Yankees have, after many years of a lot of fans wanting to do this kind of sold, they were a seller for the first time in my memory at the deadline. They've now brought in a lot of prospects. We've seen this kind of excitement around the new team, you know, Sanchez being the leader, but also Aaron Judge, who hit a big, meaningless home run last night. 
And so, so now there's this challenge of how do you go from there to building a team that contends? Do you think the Yankees can do it? There's a whole player development. There's talent accumulation. Now there's the player development piece of that. What do you think the Yankees' shot of doing that is? What are the things they have to get right to get from here to there? Well, I certainly think they're better off than they were a month and a half ago. That being said, I, I have my doubts on a lot of things. And I, I, I think that Brian Cashman did as, about as well as he possibly could at the trade deadline. They, they got a pretty good haul. But, I mean, the prospects, are, they're, they're called prospects. They're not guarantees. And uh, so, I mean, Gary Sanchez has, has done a great job so far. But if you look at the people who've had that kind of start, it's, uh, it, it's names like Wally Joyner. And the Kevin, Kevin Moss. Kevin Moss, right, yeah. So, and and uh, uh, Mike Jacobs, the, those are names. So you haven't really necessarily had superstars have that sort of start. He could be a flash in the pan, but supposedly he's going to be good. And, and when you look at the Yankees... Over the, last, the, the position players that come to mind over the last, I would say, 10 years that are impact players that they've developed, one is Robbie Cano, of course, isn't with the team. The other is Brett Gardner, who I think turned into a pretty good, useful ball player, not a superstar, but a good, useful ball player. Other than that, it's been very, very little. So, how, so can you get the Clint Frazier's to be impact? The Yankees, do you think they have the player development skills to do that, to get from here to there? Well, you would hope so. I, I always wonder with these things. That you, you have Brian Cashman, who's been the GM since uh, the, Clinton was in the Monica Lewinsky scandal. <laughs> and, and, and yet, it just seems like they don't always have the best and the brightest. Uh, exhibit A is, is Ivanova, who was basically kind of a bust recently with the Yankees. And he goes to Pittsburgh, he's 5-0. and up. I mean, what's going on there with, as far as like with, with his pitching that he could just, I know it's National League and it's, it's a little easier, but it, it's just it just remarkable turnaround. What, what is Pittsburgh seeing that the Yankees didn't? And my other concern is that the, the free agent market isn't what it used to be. And ironically, Ivan Nova is one of the big names on the, the free pitching, agent. On the pitching side, there's almost no yes. one coming out. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the Yankees, what happened, as you know, is that all, all these teams got the big, big, um, local uh, TV contracts, which the Yankees were the first to do that, uh, have the massive networks and everything else, and they, they signed up their superstars. So it's not like it used to be. Well, every year the Yankees can go Christmas shopping and get CC Sabathia. Or, and if they do, it's a 32-year-old CC Sabathia. Right, right. exactly. And, and, and Alex, I want you to, to, I'm going to make a transition here in a moment, but um, there is this 2000, I think it's after next year, where there is this kind of Manny Machado, Bryce Harper class. So there is this sense that they could add then. But... The other question for me is, is this a team that has the patience, right? This is, you know, it's not going to happen instantly, even with the expanded playoffs, right? Making it, if they sneak in this year and get knocked out in the first round, mm -hmm. yet again, is that really, there's a lot of money in their coffers, but is that going to keep the fan base? Is that going to stop another situation where we could, Dodgers come to town and there's a whole section with an L.A. Dodgers banner. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, well, that's the thing. I mean, even with the Subway Series this year, you, you had the seven line, and they bought, uh, I was at one of the games, they had several sections, and it was just Mets people, and they, the, the fact that they sold the tickets like a third-party way, and the Yankees were happy to have them, that, uh, we, you know, have that enemy territory. Uh, it is just, and, and certainly with, with um, San Francisco, it, it, um, they seem to have a lot of uh, contingent at Yankee Stadium as well. When, when I first moved to New York in 19, moved back to New York in 1990, if I saw somebody my age with a Giants hat, I would approach them and within five minutes we would have people in common who we knew. That's how rare it was. The Giants were this obscure thing going on across the country. Today it's, it's different. That's a franchise that has taken a very different approach than the Yankees in many, in many respects. Alex, you're a Yankee fan. Um, but I, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to make, an, I'm going to make an analogy here that may be a strange one, but 
we're, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of the end of the Soviet Union. And at the time, that was, you know, it was a great, obviously, hugely important geopolitical event. Um, but it was also seen as this moment where you know, democracy was going to flourish. All these kind, many of these countries were going to move forward in that direction. The last quarter century of history has shown something different. And again, there's this, I don't want to compare the kind of Alex Rodriguez, Carlos Beltran to the Soviet regime, but there is this <laughs> sense of, of the weight that was dragging down the possibility is gone. And how do you turn that into what might be the outcome we wanted? In the Yankees' case, it's a winning baseball team. In this case, it's, it's uh, you know, democracy, it's freedom, it's country states that function freely. So anniversaries are really interesting times to reflect. And I think if you had checked in uh, five years ago on the 20th anniversary, or say 15 years ago on the 10th anniversary, we would have thought about this issue very differently. Um, you know, going to DC frequently, talking to policymakers, think tankers, as well as academics, there's an overwhelming sense of pessimism at the moment regarding democracy and its trajectory. Um, policymakers are, are literally lost for ideas. How does this turn around? Even the diagnosis, what exactly has gone wrong? Um, and, you know, how is it that um, something that seems so inevitable when we were talking about the end of history in the 90s after the Soviet collapse, that everyone would be a Democrat, everyone would want free market economies, um, has now gone in a number of different directions. Now, I don't think it's as dire as people make it out to be because the pendulum goes back and forth, but I do think we see some common trends, right? Common trend number one um, across a lot of countries is that we're seeing a kind of return of nation-first, anti-immigration, anti-globalization, right? Whether it's trade, uh, whether it's... You're talking culture. about Western states. Western, that's right, Western states kind of thing. But um, a lot of these uh, trends, you can also see them in the East European countries that first went democratic, embraced Europe and sort of liberal democracy, and now are openly saying, no, liberalism is not for us. We want to be an illiberal polity. And Viktor Orban of Hungary is a really good example, right? Saying that he admires Putin and he admires China and he wants Hungary to have relations with all of these countries. So I think the era in which it was sort of fashionable to associate yourself with the West, with liberal democracy, that's over. And a lot of these rulers are solidifying themselves. Erdogan in Turkey is another good example um, by appealing to a sense of sort of uh, you know national identity, sort of us versus the world, uh, and that's very much a trend. I was actually just in Israel, and it's hard, regardless of what your views are on the Middle East, it's hard not to think of Netanyahu in that vein also, which is a country we've never thought of quite that way before. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, and I think the other thing that's brought up by Netanyahu, when you recall when sort of, you know, the White House tried to intervene, not very subtly and without great success, in fact, it backfired on them um, prior to the election, you also see uh, this play towards blaming outside interference and outside forces for a lot of the sort of ills in society. And that's a very successful strategy. I mean, I'm going to try to go back to this analogy, but in, 19, in the 90s there was one model, right, and that was the West. And it seems like partially what you're saying is that there are now alternate models, and they, they're not 
as democratic. They're not as oriented around human rights as many in, in Washington might, might like. And they're not as oriented around the United States foreign policy interests as, as many in Washington might, might like. And, you know, uh, in, in the world of baseball, in the mid-90s, there was the Yankee model, which was develop four Hall of Famers, five if you count Bernie, well, four, five borderline Hall of Famers, add in as many free agents as you need, and run the table every year. And if you were a Yankee fan, that, was a, that model worked great. Um, you know, in the 1950s, it was spend more money than everybody, and when, Mickey, when Joe DiMaggio gets old, find Mickey Mantle. When Bill Dickey gets old, find Yogi Berra. These are obviously models that, that are not so easy to duplicate. But what, what happened in baseball, similarly, is that the rules changed, and other models came up. So, I mean, the Rays were among the first teams, but you know, certainly the Giants and the Cardinals nailed down the... Um, Nail down the young talent, your Madison Bumgarner, your Buster Posey's, and fill in the free agents very selectively. The Yankees have been unable to do that. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm, we're try, I'm trying to bridge these things through an analogy, but do you, do you see a, simila a similarity there? I think one pivotal point in terms of world affairs was the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. And that was a devastating blow to the kind of international prestige of democracy, but also this Western model um, that, um, you, know, the, you know, obviously there were sort of, you know, concerns about, um, you know, our financial institutions, our capacity to spend. Um, but at that time, too, what happened globally is that China really started to be perceived as a superpower in the making. So one of the things that's happened since is that we don't have money to spend in the same ways that we used to on programs and projects. And a lot of countries turn to us and say, well, you know, the Chinese are giving us a lot more investment than you are. All you're giving us is sort of, you know, rhetoric about norms, about values. You know, this isn't affecting our bottom line. So that, in combination with the discrediting, I think has separated the democracy and the values from our, um, you know, economic heft. And I think we're finding out, without that economic component, of our kind of state power, we're a lot less attractive as a model. So I want to I want to um, bring this into the, the the today's news, which I don't always like to do, but we're we're at the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, and we're in the middle of a presidential election where Russia has played a different. The only elections where Russia has played a similar role in the United States have been on film and in literature, right? This is a very unusual situation, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this Trump-Putin relationship in the context of, for example, some of the things you were saying about Viktor Orban, right? How, how Donald Trump fits into that. What it might mean if the United States is, um, is moving in that direction. And, and obviously, you know, some detail about why we should be concerned, or if we should be concerned about the Trump-Putin, the Trump-Putin-Manafort triangle. Manafort's not so much in the picture now, but was influential, you know, early on with regards to Ukraine and other issues. At least if you want to weigh in here as well, that would be great. What I find really interesting about the Trump-Putin dynamic uh, is, first of all, just you know how personal, right, um, the dynamic has become. In other words, you know, one of the reasons that Trump cites of liking Putin over and over again is not only his perceived strong rule, but because he says nice things about him, right? Because he respects him, right? Which is really interesting analytically when you think about all these institutional commitments, these alliances. You know, these international organizations, these legal commitments that we've, you know, sort of vowed to uphold, these treaties that we signed, none of them matter 
right? As long as you have like a good pragmatic working relationship. And I think this is why, particularly on foreign policy issues, you see such a segment of Republicans kind of horrified at a Donald Trump foreign policy, right? It's a sense that international relations shouldn't be about personal politics. It should be about long-standing policy uh, positions uh, and commitments. Beyond that, I think you see some superficial similarities, right? The sense of the kind of the strongman approach, uh, not having yeah, you know, time for sort of you know, outside influences. But I think with concern about Russia, this is a really interesting twist and one that Putin is savoring, right? Going back to our golden 90s, it was standard and it was accepted that the US could go around telling the world how to run their elections, right? That we would send democracy monitors, we would assess the quality, we would write briefers, we would express concerns to ambassadors. Uh, and countries like Russia for a while sort of, you know, kind of took it uh, and then started to grow more and more disconcerted at this practice, especially once we had some of our elections too, like 2000 in Florida, right? Say, you know, who's criticizing who here? 2000 changed a great, and, and, and the echo of 2000, in my view, when we hear Trump, and, and this struck me in the primary as well, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump had this theme of if I lose, it's because the system is rigged. And we now, now if, you, if, you were, I, if you were 18 years old in 2000, you're now in your 30s. The generation of people who have grown up questioning American elections that, you know, when we were kids, I don't think those questions existed. They may have been more relevant when we were kids, but they weren't asked this much. Right, and I think the sort of understanding that so much of our elections are politicized, right, in terms of how many polling stations we open, what kinds of early voting hours we can keep, what kinds of ballots that we use. I think a lot of Europeans looking at this just look in absolute kind of shock and horror because they use standard election formats, right? It's not a domain that's down to sort of individual local polities to choose how to conduct um, elections, although certainly other things are, are politicized. So now we're in this era where Putin is relishing the fact that he is interfering in our elections, right? Albeit in an indirect way with this sort of, you know, uh, Putin envy and Putin worship, and possibly, according to some with the leaks of the DNC emails, some sort of sanctioned hacking, right, by third parties in Russia, um, and attempts to uh, manipulate or mess our elections. So I think for Russia, and a certain category of Russians, this is sort of, you know, the comeuppance of the U.S., that you interfered with us, and now you're getting a taste of your own medicine. Okay. I just want, want to add something of the, um, what, regarding Trump and what you were saying about with Putin. It basically, the, the, the Putin, you know, kissing Trump's butt, and, and, and Trump seems to, as you're saying, it's like, this is, this is what all this is about. I'm, I'm a, I watch Celebrity Apprentice, it's a guilty pleasure of mine. And uh, they did the All-Star Edition, and Penn, Penn Jillette was awesome. He should have won, he was in the finals against Trace Atkins. But he made the mistake of writing in his book that uh, he, he compared uh, Trump's hair, he said something about it, it was like cotton candy and, and urine together. Uh, it's a little <laughs> more profane than that. But so, Thank you. so the, the uh, so the, when, when, when Trump is about to decide who's hired as, as a, in the finale, he, he brings up the book. And you said such and such in the book. And then it's like, you know, uh, basically, you're out. You're fired. So, uh, but that, that, that's the mindset that Trump is. It, 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 it's one of these things where you think, like, this is this cliche that he, he doesn't really act like that. Yeah, he does. 
that's, that's really frightening. Right, that it couldn't possibly be so personal, right, or so petty. And yet, you know, he really does have a memory of sort of recalling these types of interactions and these types of slights. Um, you know, I think... And it's one, way, it's one thing to run a Republican primary that way, yeah. right? It's another thing to be an actor on the international stage that way. I mean, can you imagine if other American leaders took that approach to foreign policy? Stalin said nice things about FDR, one probably bad example. But, you know, it, it, he said nice things about me, so the human rights record doesn't matter, what they're doing in other countries doesn't matter, because this is, I mean, this is just, adolescent is, is an insult to adolescents to describe it that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the other thing is that imagine if somebody does a thing of, of making fun of his hair, or, or says something personal, just, or says something about his hands. Well, the, after Rubio said that, they were just, oh, wow, and they, they did the debate and they talk about his manhood and everything else. So, I mean, we can end up in World War III. If somebody, if, heaven forbid, if he wins and somebody insults him, that's truly frightening. And, and the one thing about which he's most sensitive, you know this? If you really want to get under Donald Trump's skin, question his wealth. Right, yeah. Because he's, yes. he's not really worth whatever he claims right. to be worth, according to right. most... That's what is the one, if there's one line you really don't want to cross with Donald Trump to get on his bad list, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Of wealth. Speaking of, of wealth and sensitivities to issue of wealth, I want to pivot a little bit, it's an overused word in election season, but Lisa, you've written a lot about this StubHub Yankee secondary ticket market. This is a changing topic, but it's an interesting one. I went up to Yankee Stadium, I decided I wanted to go see Gary Sanchez, and I actually, for the record, was, was quite impressed. It came up in around the fifth inning, and... Um, Pitch was on the was the outside corner. He's a right-handed hitter, and after you know years of watching Mark Teixeira take that pitch on the outside corner and line it weakly to the, into the shift for an out, mm -hmm. you know as a left-handed hitter, seeing Gary Sanchez and he took that pitch and he hit it nicely to the opposite field for a base hit, and I thought and I thought to myself, wow, that's a nice piece of hitting for a rookie, and then I watched and I thought that's going to bounce off the wall for a double because he hit it really hard, and then it kept going and going and and actually went over the fence for a home run. And it was quite an extraordinary bit of hitting for a veteran, let alone for a rookie. But that's not the question. The question is this. I bought the ticket last minute on StubHub mm -hmm. because I was going alone, and I just wanted one ticket. My friend couldn't make it. It was just the easiest thing to do. It got a great price. And once I bought this ticket, I got this thing in the email. You can't print it out. You have to do... You have to have it on your smartphone, and I, you know, I immediately thought of you. So tell us a little about this kind of StubHub issue, what the Yankees are getting at, why it's a problem for ordinary fans, what the messaging is here from the Yankees. Okay, yeah, the, the Yankees have all of a sudden decided that, that, that ticket counterfeiting was this huge problem that they need to deal with, so they, they said we've got to move into the modern age, so no more, no more um, print-at-home tickets, they all have to be mobile. Well, first of all, <laughs> somebody ought to tell uh, Apple this, I, I guess they, their latest iPhone has a, that allegedly more battery memory, but the rest of us, I have to charge my phone a couple times a day. So the idea, I have to go to a game and make sure my phone's charged, otherwise I'm out of luck. I can't just print the ticket. Right. I was afraid to listen to podcasts on the way to the game. <laughs> right. I didn't want to lose my battery. Right, right. And, and, so, and, and, and then uh, the, the city field has it. You, you can print it out. You can do it on the phone, whatever. And, and, and then the other thing, like, they still haven't really quite figured out what do you do when you get there? You got to carry, you, do you have that the whole evening? You got to make sure your phone's charged in case you leave your seat and come back. What if you're partying two or three or four yeah. and one person has all tickets on their phone? Right, right. There, there, there's so many problems with it. But the, but the big reason that they did this, and it, it was a joke because at the same time they're saying about this, they're stepping into the counterfeiting. Michael Kay's on his radio show talking about how he, he got tickets for his wife for Hamilton, uh, which were. Uh, hard copy print tickets, 
and uh, they, they bought them on, on uh, Craigslist, and they were counterfeit. So it's like, <laughs> here's something, here's your example, and these are real-looking tickets that, if, you, if that, that's the real counterfeit. I mean, not the printed home, but the... Yeah, the, the actual hard stuff, yes. Yes, so it wasn't the print at home or anything else. So, I mean, this is just all a front because they, they, the Yankees had their ticket exchange, which was with Ticketmaster. And, and uh, StubHub was eating their lunch. So they decided, well, and that was the other thing. Aside from this is um, that StubHub, if you wanted to buy tickets from there, uh, you, you would have to go, then StubHub opened an office, and it was about um, um, close to well, probably 12 blocks away from Yankee Stadium. You'd have to go there, pick up the tickets. In order, and then you get like the hard stock tickets or whatever, because you couldn't do it on the phone or anything. What? Why? What is the Yankees' agenda here? This is—they are selling a product that people want to have a good experience, so they will return and have that good experience again. It's not cheap to go to Yankees. It's not cheap to go to Red Sox game either. A lot of baseball experiences aren't cheap. What is their goal here? How is what is how does this fit into a customer relations framework uh, that really builds around repeat business, builds around bringing young people in? And I say this to someone who, at the end of the year, always regrets I didn't go to enough Yankee games. But um, what are they? What are they thinking? Yeah, it, it just is crazy because it, you have at City Field, and they're they're extremely fan friendly. They did a, an event on President's Day where, and, and it, they actually they ended up having too many people, but they ended up uh, they didn't have enough vouchers at the time. The thing was that you could get two free tickets from going, and so they they uh, ended up just just for waiting online. We we got tickets to use at a regular time. They were very good seats. Uh, they, they, the Mets are always trying to get people in, in the ballpark, and it's succeeding. They're, they're getting the attendance is getting better and better. Also, having a team that wins the World Series has a little something. Goes to the that. World Series. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, well, that's that, and uh, you know, hope, hope, I guess we'll see this year. But I mean, since and, and as you know, the the the, uh, the year after getting to the World Series, the ticket sales usually. Go I had up. I had a very. A couple of, a few years back, I was sitting across the hall here at the Hermitage on a summer day, and it was hot. And I decided to take the afternoon off and go to the Yankee game. And I rode my bike up there, and they wouldn't let me in with my bike helmet. So I had oh. my bike helmet. And because I would fling it at somebody oh. <laughs> as a weapon. This is a, he's a styrofoam, you know, it's not exactly yeah. a weapon. I, I, and I had to check it across the street at stands, whatever. And I did, I got angry. So I just went to two or three gates, and finally somebody let me in. But I was very upset about this. A couple weeks later, I went out to San Francisco uh, to visit some of my family. And uh, went to a, a Giants game with a friend, and he said, we'll ride our bikes. And I said, oh, can we bring our helmets in? And he said, there's valet parking. In San Francisco, there is free valet parking for your bicycle. Wow. You don't even need to bring a lock. They watch it for you. You tip the guy a couple dollars at the end of the game, and you get your bike back. Helmet, whatever you want. Bells, if you want to paint in orange and black. It seems like in the 21st century, now I don't know if they do this anymore, but that seems like that's part of that also. Yeah, well, they just, they're, they're extremely unfan-friendly. And the thing is, they haven't had to be because no matter what they did, people wanted to go see Derek Jeter, people wanted to go see A-Rod, people wanted to go see Mariano, they want, and people want to see a, a team that was in the playoffs every year. So they, they've just, they have, they have no experience at, at actually uh, being friendly with the fans. And it's just every year it's, well, what can we do to maximize the profits or whatever? And we don't have, we, and, and so this year they decided, they, they've been pushing the, the, the ticket exchange and, and they was using StubHub as, a, as the, uh, the, their, uh, you know, a bogeyman for another year of this. And then finally, they, they finally made a negotiation with them. And, and on the surface, it looks great. Okay, they, they made the deal with StubHub. This is going to help the fans. But unlike every other team, 
in, in the United States. The, the, the StubHub has a ticket minimum of $6. For, uh, the, that's for all the teams. But the difference with the Yankees is it, they, the, the tickets cannot go below 50% of the season ticket value. Every other team, that's not the case. But so that means that the tickets, which were minimum of, of $6, uh, with StubHub now, they're $7.50, they're $10. I just tried today to see what would happen if I tried to sell grandstand seats. Now that's $10. Well, may, maybe if you're, if you, you know, if, if it may not seem like that much, but that's, you know, that's pretty good junk. Right, especially if, you, if it's something that, I mean, the, the, the appeal of baseball, of a baseball game is, is that it's something you can do at the last minute. It's affordable, and the secondary, these websites like StubHub make that possible. And you want to go as cheaply as possible, otherwise no one's going to. Right. And to, and to create problems there doesn't seem to be, make a lot of sense. Right. And, and, and the thing is, which, which I've always agreed with with the Yankees, where they would say, this is the free market, when people complain about free agents or the, or the ticket prices or anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a free market. Now, it's, when, it's, when it can hurt them, oh, no, we've got to do these artificial things to keep it from being a free market. Well, that's consistent with the behavior of major league baseball owners for over a century, right? Yes. So there's nothing, there's no inconsistency there. Yes. So is there actual evidence that ticket exchanges have hurt season ticket sales? I mean, is this something that we have actually good data on, or is it just this reflexive wanting to sort of you know, protect the value of the product? Yeah. No, I, 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 well, I'll tell you the thing with the, with, it, there's a double-edged sword on that. Is that uh, and I know that one of the reasons the, the Yankees did this was that the season ticket holders were complaining. And in other words, I mean, the Lontros thing where he said about what the, the fans who are not used to sitting in the seats. I'm sure that's the case that they've had the, the, the regular fans who are the, or the fans who are spending all this money on tickets. And, and, but the real subtext of that is I paid such and such. Why is this person getting this sort of deal? Uh, the, the real thing I think is going to be next year with because if, if fans can't sell these tickets for, I mean, they can, the Yankees can do all this of, well, we're only going to have a 50% or whatever, but the fans aren't buying it. And if the season ticket holders are, are, are not able to sell their tickets, what's going to happen next year? How many people are going to buy season tickets? I think yeah. there's and I think once you remove this expectation that you have playoff tickets to look forward to, Exactly. Every year, right? Which is the real premium you're right. paying for. That's why you but then you, right, that's why you buy season tickets and you can tolerate all the other stuff. Then it actually just becomes a financial calculation, yes. right? And I think that's the danger. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's if people figure it out, it's like the, the good thing with the secondary market is it used to be, well, shoot, I've got, the, I've got my season tickets. I've got to find somebody to go buy this or I've got to give it away or whatever. Now you've got, you can put it online. It's, it's very simple, that sort of thing. So you, you always have a market to buy it. But the question is if, if, if people aren't buying it and you, you find that even at the, even at the, what your, the lowest prices they'll let you, because if it was up to the fans, if it's the last minute, if you're going to get two dollars, you'd be happy. Well, two dollars is better than nothing. There so. might be another interpretation here too, which is more troubling from the, from the Yankees' perspective. And this is—I suspect there's some truth to this. Most of these season tickets are not—I mean, these are expensive. Right. They're not people like like us. They are corporations, law firms, businesses, people who entertain as part of their business, people who have a large law firm where you have a few boxes or something, and you know that some someone wants it every night. That's the theory. That there, these are people who who don't need that fifty bucks. A lot of this, you know, the way the way I, if I buy tickets and I can't use them, I feel bad, badly. But what's striking is they end up on the secondary market because they can't give the tickets away. 
And that's what's, what is a hard, that, that to me is a, more of a warning bell than anything else. This, this, problem, this secondary market issue exists because the law firm, I mean, I remember I worked in a construction firm 30 years ago in San Francisco. The Giants were terrible. And, and we had season tickets. And at the end of every weeknight if the Giants were home, I would get a call. I would run the plan room. And I would get a call. We have, do you want the tickets for tonight? And I would say, how many do you have? They would say eight, which is the whole box. It was the whole box. They were $8 face value. And I would say yes. I would call a friend. And I'd sell the other six for $4 each. Make them, you know, but at least they could give some of them away. Right. Now I suspect not being able to give the tickets away is an even bigger problem. Well, the other thing is that there's the, the uh, team over in, in Flushing. And if you're, if you're entertaining clients, it, it, it depends on the, 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 well, what's going on. If, if, if when the Mets have so much more going on of a better team and more interesting team, I think you're going to find more and more that, that that's where people are going to want to and, entertain clients. And this, you're no longer comparing Yankee Stadium to Shea Stadium. That to me is a big, a big part. Yes. The new Mets ballpark is, is quite nice. It is. And Met, Yankee Stadium is nice too, but there's no difference anymore. Right. Well, the only difference is, I, I would say, because I've actually gotten a chance to sit in the, the fancy seats for both. And, and the Yankees are better because it's unlimited. If you're in the, the, the legends in front of the mall, it's unlimited food. I mean, we're talking, we're talking crab legs. We're talking shrimp. We're, talk, we're talking steak. We're talking, we're talking Frank Pellegrino of Reyes. Was there cooking up pasta when I was there? And, I mean, I, I'm never in my life getting in that restaurant, but I got to talk to him and, and eat the you know, pasta at Yankee Stadium. Now that that's how much you have at City Field. Uh, they they do have the food, but uh, for the most part, you have to pay for it. It's not included. But so that if you're in the legend seats, that's pretty much the the. That, that's the pinnacle. But there's so many seats at Yankee Stadium that even the good seats don't have that. So I, when you compare it to City Field, that the, the irony is, is if you sit in the fancy box at City Field, what's the best perk you can have food-wise is Shake Shack. Right. And then you don't have to wait online. So it's much more the man of the people kind of thing. Um, I want to, I have two segments before we wrap up I want to I introduce as this is the first show, but introduces regular segments of the podcast. The first is I want you two who come from different fields and have been good enough to have this discussion on both baseball and international affairs, we'll move Donald Trump, which I guess is inevitable, uh, to ask these questions to each other based on what you've thought of what the other person said today, based on what you know about the other person. Uh, so maybe we could take a moment and do that. And then the second, I'm going to ask you to make a couple of, of brief predictions about your field of expertise, and then we'll wrap up. So Alex, do you have any questions for Lisa? I do. So one thing I'm wondering... Um, is in terms of sort of baseball and keeping fan attention and popularity of the game, um, I want to ask Lisa if there are any rule changes she would recommend or consider that she thinks would be beneficial for the game and sort of fan interest in the game. What would they be and why? Yeah. Um, well, I, I would like to see them, one, one thing is actually enforce the rules on how long, and they've started to do this a little bit, but with the pitchers, how long they take to throw the ball, because it just seems, they need to do something to speed up the game. I think that that's obvious. I, I don't know what else you could do a formal rule to, yeah, I, I don't know if you could tell people <laughs> X amount of time, the, you, know, you can't spend this much time in the batter's box adjusting your glove every time or whatever. Uh, but they, they need to speed up the game, especially Yankees, Red Sox, sometimes at four, four and a half hours. It's crazy. Uh, but on a personal note of a rule I'd like to see changed is this, the Yankee haircut. 
I think it's, it, it, it's silly and it's outdated. And if you go back and look at the 70s, there's this whole fetish of, well, George Steinberg had this. Does anybody remember the 70s teams? They, they, I think it's even like they, they enforce it now with like you can't have the hair above the, you know, for the color. It's like Lou Pinella had kind of long they hair. They had asked Gamble to cut his hair yeah. almost as soon as he got here, right? Yeah. Maybe there was a racial component to that. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, if you go back and look at the Just pictures. For, for those of you who are not aficionados of yeah. obscure left handed sluggers <laughs> in the 1970s, Oscar Gamble was, had the most impressive, impressive afro in, in baseball, I would say. Um, and he was traded from the Indians to the, the I'm just going to jump in because this right. is a great piece of baseball trivia. Um, he was traded from the Indians to the Yankees for a guy named Pat Dobson. The Yankees sent Dobson, who was a pitcher, to the uh, Yankees, to the, to the Indians. And that year, Topps baseball cards had a traded series. So people who were traded over the offseason, like a fake newspaper headline. So they had Oscar Gamble with his enormous, enormous afro in a kind of Photoshop, didn't have Photoshop back then, but painted Yankee hat over what had been his Indians hat with the headline, Yankees take gamble on Oscar. And then they had Dobson with a headline that even by the standards of the 1970s was pretty racist that said, Tribe adds Dobson to Wigwam. That was the actual fake headline. I have that card at, at my mother's house in San Francisco. But um, Oscar Gamble, shortly after coming here, had to get his haircut. And he was, he obviously was African American. Right. And, but yeah, I mean, he had to get his haircut, but you had Luke Pinella, you had Bucky Dutton, and he had yeah, Thurman Munson and had that, you know, the, the mustache he had all the way down, and, and Goose Gossage, the, the long mustache, it was practically a beard. And so, I mean, this, this whole thing of this, we're going back to the way things used to be, well, even, even when Steinbrenner was enforcing these things, and he was the whole Steinbrenner in the 70s, they still looked, they, if, the, if the guys of the 70s were today, we'd say, compared to the Yankees now, oh, look how sloppy they look. It's not the Yankee way. I just think it's silly on, on the, this this day and age, and especially it's going to hurt them with free agents, like something like Bryce Harper. He he seems to do what he wants. I don't think he's going to be into a haircut. <laughs> now, do you have any other questions for Lisa? Uh, I guess I'm just uh, also really interested as a longtime New York baseball observer. Um, you know, I'm wondering if you know, you know this this I'm really interested in this sort of post a kind of powerhouse paradigm that the Yankees now confront, right? This idea that, you know, we're just going to sort of spend our way to being competitive every year, whether you like it or not, and by just the sheer force of our ballot box and the score that we have, um, we're going to be in the running. Um, and if that's no longer working, what would you like to see, or what do you think sort of, you know, the new kind of mantra of the Yankees could be? Um, it seems as if the Mets have done it through, you know, greater inclusion, um, 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 you, know, go, uh, you know, going younger to a certain extent, but, but, but what could the, the sort of new Yankees era look like? Well, I, one of the things that I would like to see is them import uh, player development people and front office people from other teams. But why they don't go and raid what, what San Francisco's doing? or St. Louis, look at the guys in front office and, and see, oh, yeah, we're, you know, Theo in, in, in Chicago, see who's under Theo, and, and, and look, who are people that we, we have ideas, that might have ideas that we haven't thought of yet? Because they're so focused on the Yankee way and everything, and all these Yankee, uh, the people that they have, Brian Cashman's been in the system 30 years, 
maybe they need some other ideas from the outside. So I don't know what it, what it could be, but maybe if you had some different people, you could formulate what, what the Yankees could be for the 21st century. However, the Yankee people have won three World Series this decade. Unfortunately, they've won them all for the Giants. Right? <laughs> Dick Tidrow, Kevin Newlands, Dave Brighetti, Steve Balboni. So, yeah. you know, but, but it's a very good point. Where you can use your money is to bring in talent from other, you know, at the front office. You can't, you can't just bring in that slugger the way you used to be able to. Lisa, do you have any questions for Alex? And then we're going to go to predictions. Yes, yeah, so now you're a Yankee fan. And, um, well, but, um, what, what I was wondering with, uh, do you think you'll, you'll see in New Year's, also the expert on Central Asia, will we ever see anybody from there playing in the American uh, baseball or anywhere else? So baseball hasn't really caught on. Actually, Lincoln's more of an expert on post-Soviet baseball than I am. So I'll let you weigh in on sort of the Russia-Georgia prospects in a sec. I'll say one thing that I think is detrimental to the game is the fact that it lost its Olympic status. Now, when we say Olympic baseball, we just you know, say, you know, whatever, like who pays attention to Olympic baseball. But that actually carries a lot of currency because that's the one time in four years that random people from around the world are going to sort of, you know, open to the challenge of every obscure thing going on. Um, and they'll get into it and they'll try and figure it out and sort of suss it out. And you might pull, you know, some attention there. Without that kind of international status, baseball is going to be viewed anyway as more of um, an American game. So I don't, I don't see the prospects there. Um, very different than, say, the NBA, right? In the NBA, um, the aspiration from all around the world is to play there. And there's some, actually some pretty decent leagues outside in Russia. Actually, the Kazakhs have an okay league uh, and so forth. Um, but, you know, it's just a given that you aspire to do a stint in the NBA, you know, at some point. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering whether sort of, you know, baseball in some way, um, and also I know I don't think that the, the what was it, the World, uh, baseball, Classic. World Basket, baseball. baseball Classic never, I think, fully lived up to what it could have become. Maybe because the states never won it, right? In, 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 well, the Dominican Republic kind of won it once, Japan won it twice. Right, right, right. Um, so, so I don't know. I think without an international projection, um, the game is uh, uh, probably not going to get that appeal it wanted to. Also, I would say sort of football now seems set to expand sort of overseas. And I think that's a really, really interesting move. And I don't know whether it will pay off uh, for them to say have a London franchise or something. But, you know, I think it is, if you're going to keep expanding, if you're going to keep expanding, you know, interest and the revenue uh, source and so forth, you know, to me it seems like something... To look into. I have just a couple of thoughts. I had a, I have a long interview with one of the guys who was really working to promote Georgian, was working to promote baseball in Georgia in my forthcoming book, uh, Will Big League Baseball Survive? And he believes that baseball has a future in Georgia. Now, he says this as someone who loves baseball and loves Georgia, so there's a confluence of interest there. I once got a call from a scout of the Chicago Cubs about he was interested in scouting the former Soviet Union, and he indicated that one of the concerns he had about Central Asia was that there was not a big tradition of team sports. And he said, if we have team, countries that play team sports, you can explain to someone who grew up playing basketball what baseball's about. But without that basics in a team sport, it's very tough. And related to that is that, you know, our Asian, there are Asian baseball powerhouses that are involved in Central Asia, notably Japan and Korea, but they don't get involved in promoting uh, baseball the same way that, that we do. 
the World Baseball Classic, you know, next week the qualifying rounds will be played in Brooklyn for one of the pools. And the pools are, the pool members are Pakistan, Brazil, the United Kingdom, and the team that's favored to win is, is Israel, which in Brooklyn kind of almost like a home, a home field advantage. <laughs> um, and because of the rules of the World Baseball Classic, we'll have a pretty good team. So, but, but again, you're not seeing Central Asia. I don't think there's any post-Soviet teams in, in the, even in the, trying to qualify. Um, but, you know, all it takes is one kid in, in Spanetti throwing 90 miles an hour, and you get four million yards in baseball. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Do you have any other? I, mean, ju I just thought of this now. Um, do, do, you, do you see in Central Asia, I know, uh, the, um, I know it was a cliche that people would want American blue jeans, but is there any sports memorabilia or wear that people get from America? So that's really interesting, right? Like, because we, we started the show with this observation that the U.S. no longer had the kind of appeal in terms of its institutions, its values, its kind of, sort of shiny beacon of democracy that everyone instead. And there's a number of different reasons for that, right? From us not having our own house in order, the perceptions that, you know, we have... We practice double standards and hypocrisy. We sanction sort of, you know, Guantanamo Bay and extrajudicial kind of proceedings on the one hand, then lecture countries on rights on the other. The same thing with elections. Um, but at the same time, American culture uh, and American entertainment is still highly prized and highly followed um, in Central Asia, certainly, um, also in Russia itself. Um, you know, uh, and certainly in China, all these sorts of places of the world that we consider to be illiberal. And it is an interesting paradox. And I think, you know, you know, you know the sports are more kind of cultural symbols than sort of following the ins and outs. Um, but, you know, having said that, I think pockets of the NBA are popular, right, um, all around the region. Uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, a baseball cap, you know, a Yankees logo. You know, this is the kind of thing that does appeal in a popular style kind of thing. So I think the ability to compartmentalize and pick and choose which aspect of the U.S. you like or that you want to flaunt or sort of advertise, um, uh, you know, is really remarkable. And when you sort of engage them on an intellectual level, well, isn't that inconsistent with, you know, wanting this and not this? They just look at you like, no. I mean, <laughs> why do we have to be consistent? Um, so I think that's, that's where we are right now, that certainly, um, and, and especially over so, so social media and the internet, um, a lot of culture um, here is still followed, but not necessarily the overall package of um, you know, the U.S. and you know, its standing. Um, we're going to end in a few minutes. I'm going to ask you, and I don't want this to be like a John McLaughlin, late John McLaughlin type of questioning where I interrupt you and tell you you have the wrong answer. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. But I just want to, to wrap up some of the questions that we've been talking about today with some thoughts about the future. So Lisa, for you, which of these Yankee prospects make it? And what does the next pennant winning Yankee team look like? And you can answer the second part of that however you want. You can name specific players. You can give a, how that team will be built. You can tell me it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. You know. Yeah, the, the answer is I'm not sure. There's any number of things that could happen. We, we, we've had... We, but Gary Sanchez, obviously, we talked about earlier, looks great. Um, we don't know how Cliff Frazier's going to do. Uh, was it Dylan, um, Dylan Tate from Texas? He could be the next great arm. I, I don't know. I, the one thing I, I, I think we can 
uh, guarantee for these Yankees next few years, what, whatever flaws the, the system has. I always thought Mariano Rivera was, was a player who was irreplaceable. And he's not. He's been replaced every year. If only they could, they, the, the starting pitcher, they haven't developed a, a, you know, a real star since Andy Pettit, but, but the relieving it, it's just phenomenal. So that, that's the one thing I'm not worried about. I, I, I think the hitting, they, they definitely got some young guys in the next few years. We'll see with Aaron Judge. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how, how the, that's, that's a big question, how they're, how they're going to pan out. Um, I do know they have to think of something different other than, as we discussed, the whole free agent Christmas shopping every year. It's, it's not a, it, that's going to be, you can get one part, but it, it's, not the, it's not, the whole, uh, not the whole pie anymore. Especially given that what they may need more than anything else is starting pitching, and that may be the hardest thing to get the free agent yes. in the next few years. Yes, and that, that's, that's my big concern more than anything else. Because I, I think the hitting, I, I, I think they're, you know, it looks like they've got a good young crop. We'll see what happens. But the, the starting pitching, I mean, you got Tanaka, who I'm always worried about is just like one, one, um, you know, one pitch away right. from Tommy John surgery. Pineda has been a complete bust as far as I'm concerned. And, and uh, Severino's had his ups and downs, and then, then when you have to, and then uh, Ivaldi who's hurt, so I, I don't know what, what you do after that. And Tanaka always feels to me like in a short series, he'd be great if he were the number two. Yes. You don't want him going up against, I don't know, Jake Arrieta, Blake Kershaw, the real ace of the other two. Yeah, he's paid like an ace. Right, but he's not quite no. there at this point. No, he's more like the Mike Messina type in a way of the, this is a great number two guy, solid or whatever, but I don't consider him the, uh, you know, what CeCe was in his prime. So Alex, one, one question for you, which is, so we're in the middle of this, um, you know, extraordinary election season, where we're thinking about at least Russia in a way that we haven't in a while. Um, we have this ongoing conflict in Ukraine, that we haven't talked about here, except for indirectly. Uh, Karimov just died, right? So, so there's a lot going on in the part of the world that you study. Lincoln is referencing the president of Uzbekistan. <laughs> oh, okay. The late president of Uzbekistan. Late president. But there's a lot going on in your part of the world that you study. But what's something that we should be thinking about that, that may not be on the front page or even on, you know, anywhere in the international section, the world section of a newspaper, people still read those today, um, but that something in, in that region that, you know, we should be aware of as we think about challenges to American foreign policy that the new president, uh, if it's Clinton or, or uh, Trump, will have to face. I think, I think there's two things to look out for, and they're both, I think, new, and one is over there and one is sort of back here. The one over there is China over the last two years has announced plans to build a new Silk Road um, economic belt and a new maritime belt. And even if you take the low figure estimates of how much money you're talking about, this is coming out to $800, $900 billion in proposed infrastructure investment um, through Asia. And the idea is to connect Europe um, to China via Central Asia um, and also to connect. Um, the Middle East and South Asia to China, again, via Central Asia. So this means more uh, high-speed rail, uh, more infrastructure, roads, um, you know, telephone lines, cell towers, the whole thing. So they're going to completely rewire the place. U.S. policy so far has been to say, well, we're all for connectivity, 
And this is a good thing, sort of, for us. And we haven't really thought about it in any kind of, you know, nuanced kind of way, right? And this is not to say that, you know, it's not necessarily bad or detrimental, but just the sheer impact of hundreds of billions of dollars being dumped into a bunch of projects that may or may not be economically viable, um, you know, is, is, is something I think that's going to sort of define the region, I think, developmentally um, um, for the next uh, really sort of, you know, couple of decades. Um, and, and, and will China then be able to use the fact that it's investing and spending so much money then as leverage for its own foreign policy sort of purposes? Right? You know, you're a recipient of Chinese aid, you need to toe the line on South China Sea policy or on our UN policy. To me, that's really the big question, and it's the one everyone's thinking about, including the Russians, including the Europeans, and certainly the US. In terms of the democracy front, I think one thing to look for going, going forward is the paradigm used to be that we go over there and we lecture you on how you do your elections and you know your business standards and corruption and so forth. I think the increasing academic turn now, and this is being picked up now by some think tanks and policy institutes, we're starting to recognize we're as much part of the problem here as what goes over there, and especially on the corruption kleptocracy front. We're starting to question things like our real estate practices, which have been incredibly lax, right? Whereas brokers here have had an exemption from some of the reporting requirements um, of the Patriot Act for 15 consecutive years. Uh, and finally, FinCEN and Treasury is tracking purchases of luxury real estate in Manhattan, right, and, 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 and forcing uh, at the signing to sort of discern beneficial owners, right? So it's not just these kind of shell corporations controlled by, you know, who knows when sort of buying these things. You know, so that's one aspect of it. Shell companies, the use of anonymous companies as vehicle to get money out. In other words, we have all these jurisdictions here that we say, oh, these are legitimate professional services that we provide, right? And yet we're finding more and more that a lot of these corrupt kleptocrats and autocrats over there actually uh, buy real estate here, um, keep bank accounts here, um, do business transactions here, and we're going to be forced to confront this more and more. So in other words, the paradigm of advocating sort of over there is going to start coming with, uh, you know, advocating in our practices here, which is going to ruffle, I think, more than a few feathers in a few industries here. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Alex. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you being my first guest on the podcast. And thanks again. Thank you, Lincoln. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball and international affairs. Today's guests were Alex Cooley and Lisa Swan. Alex's Twitter handle is Cooley on Eurasia. Lisa's social media handle is at Subway Squawkers. If you like the first podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to hear more from me, follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. You can also visit my website, www.lincolnmitchell.com, or send me an email at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. The next painting in the corners will be up soon. Hope you check it out. Wrong all along, couldn't run.